Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. Today I'll be speaking with Mart Esselmans. Mart is a senior researcher at the Hans van Middelhoff Foundation in The Hague. She has a great interest in the question of migration and she has published a book called New in Europe, A Vision on Migration. And after our conversation, I'll introduce you to some of the events organized by ELF during this month of July. I'm here with Marta Esselmans. Marta, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you, Ricardo. First of all, I would like to uh, ask you if you would come back again because your PhD was at Boston University and you studied the role of religion in ethnic conflict. That is very, very interesting. Can you talk about that a little? Sure. Yeah, so um, my background is actually that I was more of a practitioner in peace building. So I worked a lot with youth in different conflict regions. And I noticed that uh, you could talk about a lot and you could get pretty far in mediation, but religion is where we would really get stuck. So I decided to focus on that and to do my PhD on the role of religion in ethnic conflict, but also in conflict resolution. I ended up going to South Africa and I looked at how religious community, different church communities, dealt with the post-apartheid transition. And so I saw how, on the one hand, religion was inhibiting them to reconcile. But on the other hand, I also saw very interesting local examples of how communities used their common basis of faith to actually overcome their divisions. Uh, we, we definitely need to do another podcast. I'm going to invite you to come again in the sure, near future. anytime. And also you're a senior researcher at the Anz van Mierlo Foundation in The Hague. Can you tell us a little bit what was the path you took to, that got you here now? Right, yeah. So I basically moved from the field of training and practitioner to academia. And then from there, I decided to move closer to the policy world and the political world. Because I saw that very often what happens in the field and what happened in academia kind of gets remains stuck in either field and it doesn't reach the people who are actually making the policies so for me working at the Hans Familie Foundation was a and still is a great opportunity to make these connections because that's what I do I I'm a researcher but I'm also very much uh, a broker of knowledge so I, I bring together experiences from from the field, from, from people who are actually working, for example, with refugees, with people who are in academia, who have really studied the matter tremendously, with the politicians who are actually uh, trying to, uh, to make the policies. And was it something in particular that draw your interest to the question of migrations? Yeah, it, it very much connects to uh, the previous work I've done on the theme of religion and ethnic conflict. Uh, in, also in South Africa, I saw the struggle with diversity. And I think that is a struggle we see worldwide. And in Europe, we see that primarily around the topic of migration. We see that our societies have been changing over the past decades rapidly. And one big change is that is migration and that we see more people with different backgrounds together, thrown together, one could say, in our societies. And that is creating serious challenges and tensions that we need to address and also that we need to manage better. So for me, that inspired me to work more on the topic of migration and to see what are the real questions at stake here and how can we, can we better deal with this. And on the topic of addressing and managing 
you are the author of very interesting book, I have it right here in front of me, which is New in Europe, A Vision on Migration. Actually, the it's a very clever title, New Thanks. in Europe. It took me a couple of seconds to get there. But... <laughs> yes, the double message. <laughs> and uh, this book, again, and I strongly recommend that uh, who's listening to this podcast to get this book, you can get it via Elf. Um, there's several uh, very interesting uh, topics of discussion, and that why I asked Marta to uh, join me today. But let's start with a couple of definition. Please help us understand better what is a migrant and what constitutes a migration crisis. Right. Yeah, that was very important for us to talk about definitions, and um, I'll, I'll talk about those two. But I, I might also bring in just some other terms that we use in our publication. And so, very briefly. To respond to this question, migrant, we really look at migrant in a very broad sense. So anybody who leaves his or her country to settle elsewhere, even if that's only temporarily. So whether that's for work, for family reunification, for asylum, that's all within the category of migrant. And then we say within that category of migrants, then you have different different types. You have the, the labor migrant and also asylum seekers. They fall within that broader category of migrants. And of course, the big differences here is why they are leaving and also to what extent they are forced to leave. And mm -hmm. that's very important. And one more category I'd like to bring in here that we use in our publication is that of newcomers. That is actually the most important category that we use throughout the publication and that's when people who have migrated have been accepted into uh, their country of destination even if only temporarily they are allowed to stay they, they got some kind of residence permit again whether for work or studies or for asylum that's from that moment on you are a newcomer in the society and from that moment on the society also has a responsibility for this newcomer the newcomer has become a resident of society as well and and we use that to to kind of shift the focus from departure to the moment of arrival um, and finally migration crisis we we address that topic and especially because we uh, disagree with that idea that we are currently experiencing a migration crisis. A very important statement in our book is that we say migration is a permanent reality. It's, it's nothing new. It's not a problem. It is, it is a reality that we have to deal with. And it does come with very serious and very urgent challenges. And we are not denying that migration today uh, we could say that migration to Europe has been increasing, although actually far less than we often think if you really look at the numbers. Mm -hmm. And most of all, the challenges around migration are increasing because we are failing to deal with it. So the crisis is not in the migration itself. The crisis is in the management of migration. That is a great point because in, there's a part in your book when you said that one of the problems of managing the crisis, it's managing the crisis of managing the crisis. Can you elaborate a little more on that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what, what we see is that if, if you look at European uh, EU policy and also the, the policy of uh, the different member states, is that migration is often looked at from a very uh, short term. So if we look, for example, uh, specifically the arrival of asylum seekers in 2015, 2016, 2017, we knew that there was going to be a peak in uh, asylum arrivals. That was pretty clear because the civil war in Syria started years ago. 
we knew that there was going to be a quite a flow of refugees and that flow would also hit Europe. That was mm -hmm. to be expected. One could actually say it wasn't even as huge as it could have been because many re Syrian refugees went to the region and stayed there. Yes. But some people came and Europe was not prepared. We, we actually allowed ourselves to uh, rely on a system that has already proven not to be working, the, the Dublin system. We, I'm sure we will come back to that later. We will and touch so, it, yes. <laughs> exactly, yeah, this is quite a big, big part of the publication too. And we basically said, yeah, so that we allow that system to do its job, but it didn't. So European countries, European leaders could have managed this better if they had, had basically taken responsibility to, to start preparing earlier and managing what can be managed. Although I have to say immediately, and that's, a, that's also an important point we're making, you cannot manage migration completely. Migration is, one could say, messy business. It's, it's chaotic, and you can never fully predict where people are going, why and how. It, it, and it's constantly changing. So I think we can do much better in managing, but we also have to be realistic that you cannot fully control it. Good. And you made it. A very good diagnosis, where did we fail? So let's talk about some solutions and some liberal solutions. One of the recurring concepts on your book, exactly with the one newcomers, which I thought was a very happy one, is freedom in solidarity. Please tell our listeners, what does this mean to you? Right. So we are looking at migration from a progressive liberal perspective. And part of the progressive liberal perspective, a very important part, is the idea of freedom and solidarity, which comes down to the idea that our freedoms are connected with the freedoms of other people and our surroundings. The fact that I'm sitting here and talking with you has been made possible by the facilities that have allowed me to study, by uh, social public services that, that helped my mother when she was in debt. So it... And that, and that connects to the other big term that we use, which is a positive notion of freedom. Freedom is not only about uh, just being free of oppression, but it's also to be free to develop. That's why I mentioned education, for example, that is important in order to be developed. Because what is freedom worth when, when you are not able to actually use it and when you cannot live in dignity? Exactly. It goes back also to the concept of positive liberty, which actually you mentioned that also in the book. So with that, with freedom and solidarity, you also mentioned, for example, freedom and solidarity doesn't necessarily just have to be on Europe. You mentioned, for example, if, if there is a problem in Senegal or in Chad or in Libya or in Syria, how can the European Union then act on these countries and in these communities in need? Right. This is an important element to mention here, is that because our freedoms are connected or interconnected, there is also responsibility. And I think that is the question I first want to ask. Why? Why should Europe also help out countries like, like Chad or Senegal that are dealing with desertification? The answer is that we are co-responsible for these problems. Look at climate change. Mm -hmm. Europe 
is plays a major role in in this um, and not only climate change but also the way we we have set up our trade agreement the way we are subsidizing our agriculture there are several things that european countries together and alone are doing that are affecting countries in africa and elsewhere both in positive but also in negative ways it, we we are affecting their freedoms basically and so we are also responsible to to try to improve the situation. Now, I'm not saying that we alone are responsible. I'm also not saying that we are the solution, but we should be aware of how we are currently contributing to the problems they're having and also aware of what we can do. How can we improve our trade relations so that it's so that there are more opportunities for uh, local farmers in Senegal? How yeah. can we address some of their climate challenges, uh, for example, by better being able to irrigate the deserts. Those are the questions I'm looking at. Those are great points. And me being from Portugal and we having this story that we have just by itself should be also one of the reasons to do it. And that is to help those communities that uh, later in the past we were there and we didn't um, again i'm talking about the portuguese example mm -hmm. but that extends to other countries in europe we didn't do a good job when we came out so right. it's time again, also to I, help on that it is it is and I, I want to emphasize i am not one who wants to think in permanent debt and thinking of like we are permanently we are forever indebted to these countries no I, I i don't think that that's a useful frame i think it's much more useful to think about how we can mutually uh, uh, how we are all mutually responsible for each other and how we can help each other. Because I think in the end, if countries like uh, Senegal and Gambia are doing better, that is also good for Europe. Absolutely. And it is a tenant of liberal values also. Talking of which, Absolutely. I'm going to change gears a little bit. And that is, you also propose in the book some measures for a durable European Union asylum policy. policy and you, you mentioned it just a minute ago. Please share, share with us uh, some of your concerns regarding that. Okay, yeah, sure. Well, maybe I'll, I'll just draw some connections here. So yeah, let's let's start with Dublin. So one thing that we, we try to show in our publication is how uh, flawed the Dublin system is. The idea that, uh, of course, Dublin system is, is very elaborate, but to, to just zoom in on uh, the essence of it, that member states are responsible for the asylum applicants who arrive in their country. That has caused tremendous problems because most asylum applicants are arriving overseas in border EU member states, such as Italy, Greece, increasingly Spain. And these countries have found themselves uh, incapable to deal with especially sudden increases, sudden peaks in asylum applications. And also European other member states have not done a very good job in supporting the country, supporting either the reception or the, 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 the processing of applications and also not the redistribution. And so there have been several attempts to, to change the Dublin system, to improve it. But what we see is whenever these attempts are made, first of all, it's, it's just not working. Negotiations are forever stuck. And they are stuck also because a lot of focus is on coercion. The whole, the whole system that we have in the EU when it comes to asylum is very much focused on coercive measures, coercing member states to follow certain rules and also asylum seekers. And of course, you need to have a certain level of coercion, but we need to also be aware that in the end, you can get most done when you focus on, when, on motivation, what, what drives people and what drives member states. And so 
one thing that that we are suggesting is to uh, to create a system that that works more on incentives and we make an elaborate proposal for how to come to a, a common EU asylum system that has also more of a shared responsibility for a distribution of asylum seekers across Europe. And uh, one, just one very concrete proposal that I would like to highlight is the idea of working with a pioneer group. This is a difficult and controversial proposal that I'm throwing out there, but I think it's it's important to mention that what we see now is that the the system we have is not working, partially also because member states are able to, to resist it and to veto it. Yes. One thing we're saying is, we, as much as we want everybody to be on board, we also see that that's not working. Because it's not working, it, you get into a vicious cycle. So then everybody thinks like, oh, it's not working, we're out of control, uh, the, the EU communities are getting angry because they feel like their leaders are, are not having any grip on migration. So we say, let's move ahead with a group of willing member states, folk, and, and really make this an honor and, and support them in moving ahead with a common asylum policy. However, Marta, there is one thing that um, I have particular interest in, for example, in Portugal and in Spain, we've been talking about that, and that is less mobility. From the reading of the book, it looked to me like you think that this also could be one of the things that could be changed, and for our listeners, meaning that less mobility, there are some rules that say that once migrants are in a certain country, they shouldn't be allowed to leave. And we've been seeing this in Portugal and other countries where migrants get here and then they go away and they disappear because they want to go to the center of Europe. How do you think we can solve this then? There are many different elements of how to solve it, but if you really look at the, <clears throat> at the long term, we need to have, as Europe and as European member states, more regular migration routes. And that sometimes sounds a little contradicting because everybody feels like, no, we need to do less and less mobility because it's so chaotic. But our point of view is that when you create more regular routes, you will in the end be able to prevent the irregular migration that is now causing so much trouble. Let me explain this. What we see today is that the European Union has relatively few regular migration routes. They're, they do exist at a more uh, national level, and then I'm talking about uh, being able to come to the EU for work or for studies. So these are more like regular pathways. They do exist, but they're limited, and they usually only exist for the, the elites. So that means that when you are from Gambia and you are medium-educated, you, you don't stand a chance to apply for a regular visa to come to any European country. And so what happens is that people take, they don't even try, but they take the irregular route. They basically try to get in the asylum flow and apply for asylum, even though they know that they most likely won't do it. They've, they risk their lives on the Mediterranean. They, they try to get in and then when they get there, and they don't unfortunately die, but then when they get to Europe, they indeed arrive in one of these border countries where they actually don't want to be, so they don't even try to go to the system, or maybe they will, but they know they will be rejected, and then they end up in illegality, and illegally are able to move through the rest of Europe in, in a way that is extremely frustrating for everybody involved. It's, it's frustrating for the different member states who have no control of who is moving where, and it's actually also a very bad situation for these migrants themselves, because nobody really wants to live in illegality. 
And so we say, on the long term, what we need to do, and actually we should start today rather than tomorrow, is to create more regular migration routes, have more visa, make them more accessible so that we have a better grip, so that, again, we incentivize people to follow the rules. If you apply for a visa and you come to Europe for a a, a limited amount of time and you return when you should, then you will get opportunities. You will get opportunities to work here for a certain amount of time and you can also come back again if if you want to. But you have to follow the rules. And I think that comes back to that idea that I talked about before, to focus more on what drives migration rather than only trying to stop it because you can never fully stop it. I would like to challenge you on another topic which is of great interest. Um, And that is when we're talking about integration policies. On page 55 of your book, you write that discussions about integrations are often taken to the extreme, and then you introduce a couple of explanations. For example, there are uh, misconceptions about the newcomers not adapting. There is what you call symbolic politics. Now, my question to you is then, what are the liberal solutions for this problem of integration and how liberal can we get? And then later on, I will uh, elaborate a little bit on that. But for now, give us some liberal solutions for this problem of integration. Sure. Yeah, I'm so glad you bring it up because integration is so crucial when we talk about migration. And I think very often we fail to make this connection. We, I mean, actually, the politicians often fail to make the connection only in a negative way. That's what I write about. They use it more symbolically, kind of warning uh, the, the public, if we get more migrants, then we will also get more integration problems. Whereas the two are connected also in a positive way, in the sense that you have to make sure that when migrants come, that you have sound integration policies and you have to invest in this. That is also very realistic. I think, in a way, we have been very naive in the past decades in Europe that we thought that newcomers can just come and then find their way and all will be fine. And it it will not. In the Netherlands, we made big mistakes. We did not invest in the people here. And it has taken a long time for people to to find work, to, to move up in education. But anyway, those are more the problems. The liberal solutions start with, again, the term newcomer and perceiving newcomers as residents in society. That is crucial because we say we need to invest in newcomers just as we invest in other residents. Because in the end, what we want is to live peacefully together. And we want everybody to be able to live their lives and also be self-sustainable and do so in a way that contributes to society. Now, Every resident needs different things. This is also the liberal approach. It's the individual approach. So we look at what different newcomers need in order to, to be able to, to, get, to get around and, and to move ahead in society. Now, for some newcomers, that means that they will need very intense support uh, with uh, language and, and social services, it's especially when newcomers are illiterate. You, you will need to invest in literacy and education. If newcomers are already further ahead, they've done studies in their countries, 
they might still need to have support with language, but you can also very much focus on the translation of their certificates so that they have a chance to actually move on to the labor market in positions where there is a good match for them. And so what it comes down to is that we say in, invest in newcomers as you invest in society. That also means that we should be aware that you the investments that we that we make when it comes to especially employment and language and education are broader investments for everybody. And, and it's important for liberal integration policy to make that connection. So, for example, when you set up a language course for newcomers, think about how there are also residents within that same town who might be struggling with functional illiteracy. So they should be in the same language course, but make sure that at the center where you offer the language course, you also offer literacy courses for your functionally illiterate citizens so that you show to society we are investing in everybody, whether you are new or not. Continuing on that topic, and one thing that... Uh your book has an added tremendous value to it, to already a very important book, and that is you had the contribution of Mayor Bart Summers from Mecklen. And there was a moment in particular where he gives an example, he, the mayor, that uh, a migrant could be a Belgian, an European, a Muslim, a liberal, a lawyer, and almost sexual. Now, my question to you is, and this is a concern that I see in the literature, also in, in, in the media and in, in public discourse, what if some of those things, like for example, those six things that I just mentioned, they're not allowed to that person by his community. Right, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good question because I think that really challenges us as liberals in our ideas of freedom. We want the individual always to be free, to be themselves. And sometimes when individuals choose to be part of a certain community, that community might limit their freedom. Right? That's actually what you are talking about, if I understand you correctly. Right? Yeah. And then the question for us as liberals is then how much freedom do we give the community to, to do that? Yes, indeed. I think we should always put the freedom of the individual first, which means that the individual should be free to become part, for example, of a religious community, but should always be free to leave that community and to, to be whoever he or she wants to be. And I think we should protect that freedom always. And I think we can use the rule of law much more than we think we can. We have in Europe liberal constitution, democratic liberal constitutions that provide tools to, uh, to regulate this. I think it's very important in, in our discourse that we always look at those law and and the law is not always clear so we, i i realize that it's it's that is a complex discussion but the law does give real instruments for how to deal with this what we should not do is try to regulate everything for example in the netherlands we can we've had tremendous debates about uh, whether or not men and women should shake hands because that's a Dutch custom that is polite. We can say, eh, we find that important. And of course we can have discussion about that, but it's never something that can be regulated by law. We're not going to officially put in the law that people have to shake hands. And I think it's important to, uh, I, this is perhaps a silly example, but I think it's important to distinguish between what, what is so fundamental that we need to regulate it. Like for example, domestic violence, no way. 
under what pretext, religious or not, it's just not allowed by the law. But that's something different from uh, whether or not children should swim separately or not, or the handshakes, or uh, those yes. kind of more uh, customs or traditions that, that are always forever changing anyway. Both you and Mayor uh, Summers, you do mention many times, and that is we want, we liberals want to give opportunity for newcomers to come, to adapt, to live in freedom. But on the other hand, they do also need to follow the rules. So Absolutely. A, a very important yeah. message. Uh, Marta, yeah. this time flew by. This is a very fascinating topic. Now, just for one uh, final message, what can you tell then our listeners, and particularly those ones in the field, you know, have to deal with populists and with nationalists, a message that we can package and, and mm -hmm. give to the people to exactly promote and defend these values that we just mentioned? Right. Well, I would say two things. First of all is talk about it. We cannot leave the topic of migration and integration to populist or to any politician from any other party. We as liberals, as progressive liberals, we, we have a story, we have real values that we can build on and that will allow us to develop policies on migration. And we need to talk about it and show uh, the public, to show people that we have a story on this. That's number one. I think number two, that story is, and that's very much what Bart Somers also said, that story is one of hope. We look at migration in terms of opportunities. And we look, these are migrants are people who are looking for opportunities. And as society, we have to think about what kind of opportunities do we give and what not. And it's a realistic story. We are not naive. We are not saying open the gates. We are saying we are managing this. And for that, because we want to manage it today and in the future, we, we are making sure that we have a long-term vision. Because in the end, it's about what kind of society do we want to pass on to our children? Is that a society that is afraid of migration, that is always having tensions between newcomers and other citizens of the country? Or is that a society that is prepared, that has a grip on migration, and that can make sure that people, everybody concerned, benefited as much as they can? The book is New in Europe, A Vision on Migration. Marta, please tell us where can people find your work? Right, you can uh, find it on the Hans Van Milo Foundation uh, website. So that is uh, the vanmilostichting.nl. You can also just Google the title itself and you will get there. You can download it as a PDF or you can order it as a print. It was wonderful talking to you. I will have you on the podcast again so that we can continue this conversation. And again, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much, Ricardo. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I'm back, and even before we go into this week's ELF events, let me tell you that you can also follow us now on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you like this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating. This way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. Now for some of the events organized by ELF during this month of July. On the 10th of July, there'll be an event called To Be or Not To Be. And this is about EU citizenship.
Some questions will be raised during this event, for example, how to reconnect Europe to its citizens by using creative and innovative instruments, or how to create a sense of community among more than 500 million individuals, and finally, the European added value of union and citizenship, what, why and how. So, following the constitution of the 9th European Parliament in July, the European Liberal Forum therefore invites you to a panel discussion about this and many other questions. And then on the 14th and the 15th of July in Gdansk in Poland, there'll be the event Tell Me Your Story, Secrets of Storytelling in Campaigning. This event is organized by HVS and VVD International. I will be back soon with more podcasts, but until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe Podcast is organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum.